We're going to talk tonight about the resurrection of Jesus. And it's interesting, I think one of the uh, great tragedies is the way the various holidays that are connected to Christianity tend to be understood in isolation from each other. One of my things I love to remind people is to remember Easter at Christmas. Because you don't understand what Christmas is about if you don't understand what Easter is about. And even as we come tonight to talk about the resurrection, I fear that a lot of people that think they understand Christianity, both people that consider themselves Christians and people that think they understand what it's about, tend to think the cross is the end of the story. And yeah, they know there's this idea that Jesus was raised from the dead, but the way we think of it functionally is sort of an addendum or a postscript or a little tack-on. Think that way is like thinking that the penultimate chord, you know, that, that chord, that dominant chord, is the end. Now, those of you that aren't musicians don't know what I'm talking about, probably. And I can't believe that going to Berkeley College of Music, I actually used a word like penultimate, because we didn't talk about that as much there as you do at some other music schools. But it's this idea that if you're in this key, da, da, it just wants to go. It doesn't want to stop there. Unless it's jazz, <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> it wants to resolve, right? And understanding the cross without the resurrection is like ending a great symphony before it fully resolves. Of course, even the resurrection isn't the final resolution. It is the first fruits of what God is up to in this world. Now, Isaac Watts gets it as right as anybody ever has in that hymn, Joy to the World. Again, we sing it at Christmas, like Lucas said, but it's really not just a Christmas hymn. He didn't originally write it for Christmas. As a matter of fact, the Puritans didn't believe in celebrating Christmas. So Isaac Watts, I don't think, would have approved of us having special worship services around Christmas or even special Christmas songs. That's not why he wrote it. It's a good one for thinking about Christ's coming and why he came. And particularly that verse 3. You know, usually the best verses in Christmas songs get left out. Verse 3, No more let sins and sorrows grow. It's a reference to the fall. When sin entered the world, it didn't just affect human beings and their relationship with God. It affected the whole of creation. The whole of the creation is frustrated now. Sins and sorrows grow together. Thorns infest the ground. But then this great line, He, meaning Jesus, comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. And the question, of course, is how far is the curse found? How far did the brokenness that came when sin entered the world extend? And does Jesus come to just lift us out of that? Or does He come to do something about that? To do something about what has spoiled and frustrated His good and beautiful creation. The Christian story is incomplete if you think that He came to just rescue us and pull us out of that. As we read for our call to worship, Revelation 21 tells us that the kingdom is coming. But when you look at what it says, it says that the heavenly city, prepared by God, is coming down onto this earth. 
The future that Christians celebrate, at least historically, a lot of them are confused today, but historically, Christians have always celebrated not being taken away, but God making all things new. Notice, it doesn't say making all new things, but making all things new. Restoration, redemption, even of this world. And that's what the resurrection is about. If you try to understand Christianity with the cross but no resurrection, you will misunderstand what it's about. And you will think that all God is concerned about is saving souls. But he's got a much bigger plan than that. So let's see where the story starts in Luke chapter 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. This is after the crucifixion and after he's been buried in the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again? Then they remembered his words. When they came back, the women from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven. That's the ones that were following Jesus, his close companions. And to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Johanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women. The apostles didn't believe the women. Because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Now that same day, two of them, that means two of the early followers of Jesus, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed the things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that means the whole rest of the Old Testament, He explained to them what was said in all the Scripture concerning Himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if He was going farther. But they urged Him strongly, Stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So He went in to stay with them. When He was at the table with them, He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized Him, and He disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while He talked with us on the road and opened the Scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. That's Peter. Then the two, who had been going down to Emmaus, told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when He broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus Himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands, my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones. Flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? (laughs) They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, meaning the Spirit, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. There's a lot there. I wish we had more weeks to get into it. But let's pray and talk about at least some of the more important things here in this text. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are alive. Help us to never take that for granted. Even now as we talk about why this is so important, what it means, open our minds that we could understand the Scriptures and understand you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the resurrection. The resurrection is really the missing piece that ties together the hopes and expectations of the Jewish people with the faith and preaching of the early church. And in this passage, you see all of that. You see these two people going down the road to Emmaus and you hear the brokenness of their hearts. We thought He was the One, the Messiah who would redeem Israel. And Jesus, in this passage, about four or five times, 
has to patiently explain how the Messiah had to suffer, and then he would be risen. They didn't understand it. Even after he's raised from the dead, telling them himself in person, they're still not sure how to put all of this together. But what we see in the faith of the early church, in their testimony about what had happened, is that something in keeping with Moses and the prophets, so in keeping with the Old Testament, in keeping with the Jewish anticipation and hopes, something happened. But what happened was not what anybody could have predicted. And they had to come up with new categories. Not just new categories about reality, but new categories about the Messiah, and new categories about what God was indeed up to. They had trivialized the story. They thought that the Messiah was coming to deal with the Romans. But God intended so much more than that. To understand this, we need to dig into, into a little bit of the cultural background. You see, there really is no way to understand what the early church believed apart from the resurrection actually happening. Now, I know that's a bold claim, and I'm going to talk about, about some of the reasons why this is really the only plausible way to understand the existence of the church at all. But it really is. You cannot explain the existence of the Christian church. You cannot explain what the early church believed and said apart from the resurrection. To grapple with this claim, we need to understand several things. The first is the context of first century Judaism and the world that Judaism was among. So by the time of Jesus' life and death, there were some Jews who had come to believe in a future resurrection. In the Old Testament, there are little hints. Okay, It's not fully developed, the idea of resurrection. But there are some hints. And so it's clear from other Jewish writings that we have that there were Jews that were beginning to understand that there was to be a resurrection, a bodily resurrection. But here's the key thing to understand. For the Jews in Jesus' day, they believed bodily resurrection was going to happen to all of the righteous people together on the last day. So the Jewish understanding was always for a bodily resurrection, but it was to be a universal one for all of the righteous people. And it would happen on the last day when God came to judge all people. Okay? There is no conception in ancient Judaism that one man would rise before everybody else. Except... Except there was, sorry, I don't, except's the wrong word. Um, let me say one more thing before I get to the, the Greek view. The Jews used this word, resurrection, that the New Testament is using here. Always, every case, for a bodily resurrection. If the early Jewish Christians meant to say that Jesus was sort of come alive in our hearts, or, you know, we basically, 
you know, floated off to a spiritual cloud, had an out-of-body experience with Jesus and knew that he was still alive. If that's what they meant, they would not have used the word resurrection. When they used the word resurrection, they were talking about a bodily resurrection. And yet the word doesn't quite fit for them because it's one person being raised from the dead. That's why it sounds like nonsense when the women come back to the Jewish apostles and say, Jesus is not there. And these angelic beings told us that he's risen from the dead. And they're like, that's nonsense. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. But we believe it will happen for all of us together. So what you're telling us makes no sense. Okay? Now, non-Jewish people did not believe in a bodily resurrection. I know that sometimes it's said that there were other religions and other ideas of resurrection, not bodily resurrection. If you want to test that claim, you can read the almost 700-page book that N.T. Wright wrote called The Resurrection and the Son of God, where he exhaustively goes through every other idea there was about resurrection. There are ideas about life going on after death, but they're always about the body being cast aside and the pure spirit continuing on. So what you have in the claims of the early church is something that is firmly planted in the Jewish idea of bodily resurrection, and yet it's significantly different. And when you think about the early church, you have to account for how did this happen to be believed by these early Jewish Christians. And not only that, why did they change even their idea of the Sabbath? If you remember the stories of Jesus, when he started what they thought was monkeying around with the Sabbath, people got very, very upset. So you have to understand something happened. You have to have some plausible way of explaining why these Jewish Christians began talking about Jesus as one who was bodily resurrected from the dead in a way they did not expect at all, in a way that caused them to change the Sabbath which was one of the Big Ten, right? Big Ten Commandments. You don't just throw that away lightly. And furthermore, we know from Roman and Jewish historians, not even from the Bible, that very early on these Jewish monotheistic men and women were worshiping Jesus as God. How do you account for that? I think the most plausible one is what the Bible tells us here, that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. They weren't expecting it, None of his followers were expecting it. The disciples weren't expecting it. They thought it was nonsense when they heard about it. And you see this in Luke's account. Now Luke is the guy, he says at the beginning of his gospel, which he writes to a man named Theophilus, says, my most excellent Theophilus, I've made a careful investigation of all these things that are being told among us Christians, and I want to give you an orderly account of them. So Luke claims that he's looked into this carefully, He's not following cleverly devised myths. Not only that, but when somebody gets named, like this guy Cleopas, do you ever wonder why is one guy on the road to Emmaus named by Luke and the other isn't? Well, here's why. Richard Bauckham wrote a fa fabulous book, came out about eight, ten years ago, called The Eyewitness Accounts of Jesus. And what he says is, in the first century, according to sort of the rules they had for evidence and how you evaluated evidence in the Roman law and the culture, you would name people like this, like Luke does, only if you'd personally interviewed them. 
In our culture, we tend to trust written sources more than eyewitness accounts. In the first century, it was just the opposite. You trusted eyewitness accounts, and if you name somebody, that means that you, the writer, have personally interviewed them. Otherwise, you leave their name out of the story. If you, this is what Bauckham does in this amazing book. He looks at all four Gospels, traces who gets named in each one, and is able to reconstruct who each of, the, each of the Gospel writers had actually talked to in researching and writing their Gospels. It's pretty remarkable. In other words, when Luke writes this, he names Cleopas, which means you can go talk to this guy. He's an eyewitness, and he's named. But you know what's interesting? The Gospel accounts are actually not our earliest witness to the fact of the resurrection. Did you know that? A lot of people are always saying, well, you know, the Gospels were written late, you know, 70, 80. The epistles of Paul, some of them were written 50 A.D., around there, less than 30 years after this happened. There are written documents testifying to the early Christians' belief that Jesus had raised from the dead bodily, was coming back again, and was God himself in human flesh. Okay? So that's what we've got to reckon with, this multitude of witnesses. And when you look at what's interesting in these gospel accounts, even though Paul's letters are earlier than the gospel accounts by date, Paul's letters have a lot of theology. In other words, Paul is already grappling with what does this mean? What is interesting and missing from the gospel accounts is that kind of theologizing. In other words, even 50, 40 years after the gospel stuff happened, 40, 50 years after the resurrection happened, when it's being written down by the gospel writers, they still tell the story as they first experienced it, even though Paul's letters have already given us theological reflection on what it means. In other words, when they went to this story and they told this story, they told it like it happened without reflection. And you know what else is interesting? In the Gospel accounts, there's lots of Scripture references, Old Testament references to explain what's going on and what Jesus is doing. You know what happens when you get to the resurrection? Hardly any quotes of the Old Testament. Again, they're saying, they're almost bringing you into their own way of coming to understand this. We didn't know what the heck happened. But it happened. We didn't think all of a sudden, oh yeah, Bible verse, insert here, help us understand it. No, we just were freaked out. Have you ever had something happen to you that was incredibly traumatic? You know, I don't, I, I was, for a preacher, I wish I knew and could remember stories from my childhood better. Because I'm always envious of preachers that have these great stories from their childhood. I can't remember them very well, but there's a few generally centered around traumatic events that I can remember like it was yesterday. This is that kind of event. This is the kind of thing that emblazons itself on their memory, and they didn't tell the story as, uh, like, I've been reflecting on this 50 years, and I've got a better understanding now of what's happening. No, they're just like, all of a sudden, Jesus showed up in the middle of us, and we're not sure where he came from. And we thought he was a ghost. But then he asked us for food. And isn't that a weird detail? <laughs> like, they're talking, they're freaking out, their minds are blowing up. And Jesus says, hey, you got something to eat? Like, literally, that's what he does. Like, that's not the kind of way you tell a story to sort of increase the drama and make it this, this really amazing story. 
It's just what happened. It's just what happened. And that's how they remember it, right? All of the accounts, all four Gospels agree it was unexpected and it turned upside down the crushing disappointment that they had had right after his crucifixion, right? Something happened to change their crushed hopes. So what does the resurrection mean for us? Well, there's a couple things. I remember, I think it was before I went to seminary, I think I was, I was uh, taking part in the, sort of this vacation Bible school kind of thing on Easter where the church had little stations and kids could come. And I, for some reason I got stuck in the uh, empty tomb. And I remember, you know, thinking, oh, you know, I, I'm not good with kids. I don't know what I'm going to do here. And um, they stuck me in the empty tomb, and I was supposed to tell these kids, like, what was so important about the resurrection. And honestly, to my shame, I'll tell you, the only thing I could really think of was, well, I know it proved, you know, that God was satisfied with his sacrifice, but I guess if he's alive, that means we can talk to him. Guys. There's so much more to the resurrection than just the fact that Jesus isn't dead and so you can talk to him. The resurrection proves that Jesus was who he said he was. And and you see this here, right? He keeps saying, didn't I tell you how the Scriptures foretold that the Messiah would suffer and then on the third day be rose again? So Jesus says the resurrection proves that all that stuff I was trying to explain to you was true. I am the Messiah. I'm not the Messiah doing the things you expected, but I'm the Messiah fulfilling the Scriptures. And here's what you have to understand. The resurrection of Jesus forced these Jewish men and women to go back to their Bibles, read them, and try to figure out where this came from. And what you see in the New Testament as people begin to quote Old Testament Scriptures, they went back and they found, wow, this really was there. But you know how they found it? Jesus took them by the hand, starting with Moses and the prophets, and said, look, this was really talking about me. Look, this, Jonah, three days in the belly of a whale, that was talking about me. This, serpent, lifted up in the wilderness, and all those who will look up at him, that was talking about me. This idea of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 who would be crushed for his people's iniquities. That was talking about me. The reason Christians read the Old Testament as seeing Jesus and speaking about Jesus is because that is what Jesus taught us to do. We have it on very good authority that the Old Testament is about Jesus because that's what Jesus taught them. Second, the resurrection proves that Jesus did what he said he would do. He really gave his life as a ransom, and the fact that he's not still in the grave shows that his sacrifice was deemed by God to be all that was needed for broken men and women, sinners, to be reconciled to God. Hebrews chapter 1 Verse 3, it's a book later in the New Testament, says, After Jesus made purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God the Father. He sat down because the work was finished. And Paul says in the letter to the Romans that He was raised for our justification. 
We sang about it, you know. When we sang in And Can It Be, Alive in Him, my living head. Does that strike you as strange? Do you know what that language is talking about? Charles Wesley wrote that great hymn. He was quite the theologian, and his theology comes through so beautifully in his hymns. The, the idea is this, that just as Adam had represented the human race as their covenant head, as their representative, and all men sinned in Adam, so all those that Jesus represents, all those who are in Him, all of them for whom He is the covenant head, get what He gets. That's the way the Bible talks about it. If Jesus died, all those who are in Him die. And if Jesus is resurrected to new life, all those who are in Him are resurrected to new life. And how does Wesley say that should affect us? What's the next line? Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. If Jesus is raised from the dead, then you should not still be groveling in your sin. Because you've been killed and resurrected. You've been put to death and resurrected. That's what it means to be a Christian. To die with Christ and to be raised with Him to new life. We are to be people of the resurrection if we follow Jesus. People who know that Jesus has done it all and people who can rest in the finished work of Christ. There's no need to add anything else. Everything Jesus did was finished. When He's raised from the dead to new life, if you're in Christ, if you put your hope in Him, you are raised with Him. Third thing, the resurrection shows that God is committed to physical reality, not just spiritual stuff. Jesus died to do more than just bring forgiveness to people. He came to usher in a kingdom triumphing over the powers. Colossians chapter 2 says this way, and having disarmed the powers and authorities at the cross, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And He comes to do to triumph over death itself. Hebrews chapter 2 puts it this way, by His death, He might destroy Him who holds the power of death that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says that he comes to bring reconciliation of all things, to call us to a future that is coming, to commission us, those who follow him, to now be the church, the colony of the coming kingdom, to demonstrate to the watching world that with the resurrection of Jesus, death has now begun to work backwards. Remember that great phrase from C.S. Lewis from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There is a deeper magic. And when this innocent victim is put to death, the table is cracked. Death itself is broken and begins to work backwards. And that's what's going on. If Christ died for the healing of the world, and not just for our souls, then his people should care about the world he died for. The resurrection shows us that God is committed to making all things new and to healing as far as the curse is found. 
God's commitment to the world is the agenda that he calls us to be about as well. Fourth, the resurrection puts us on a collision path with the world we live in. You know, it's the resurrected Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, who's finally able to draw forth this confession from one of his disciples, doubting Thomas. This is over in John's Gospel, in chapter 20. Finally, when Thomas believes, do you remember what he says? He falls down at Jesus and he says, My Lord and my God. Now you know what is interesting about that confession? Which finally comes at the end of John's Gospel when doubting Thomas sees the resurrected Jesus. Well, my Lord and my God is the words that Caesar used to use to describe himself. And the words that everyone was supposed to utter when they took a pinch of incense and offered this sacrifice to Caesar. When Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, draws forth from his people this confession, my Lord and my God, it puts them on a collision course with Caesar and his kingdom. Here's what's interesting. There's a lot of people that want to refashion the resurrection into just a spiritual thing. In other words, very early on in the Christian church, there were people who began to teach that Jesus wasn't a real man, he was kind of a ghost. That he just sort of was resurrected kind of in our ideas and sort of new hope that we get when we think about his amazing sacrifice. It inspires us. And that's sort of like coming alive again. Listen, none of those people that taught that heresy were ever persecuted by the Romans. If you think that Christianity is just about disembodied ideas, you're not much of a threat to Caesar. But the Christians that believed in the resurrection found themselves put to death left and right. So there are a lot of people that want to refashion Christianity in our day and age to be just about teaching, to be just about inspiring us to love other people. But the Christianity that people died for in the first century was the belief in the resurrection of Jesus that put them on a collision course with the kingdom of the man. The idea that Jesus just dies to take us away from this evil world was never a threat to Rome. And it doesn't really do much good in this world either. So does the resurrection matter to you? I hope so. Because without it, the story is incomplete. If you don't have the resurrection, you don't really understand what Jesus did in dying. You don't really understand why all of his healing miracles weren't just to show off. They were to say that the king is known by having the healing hands. And this is just the beginning of what I'm about. There is a day coming where there will be no more tears, no more sickness, no more sorrow. And whenever the king is there, you begin to see it. It begins to spill over into the physical world. And the resurrection says that is exactly what God is about. Do we look like those? Those of you who are Christians, would people that look at us get the idea that we believe in the resurrection? Or would they think that we really only believe in a Jesus who died so that we could pray to him? 
Would they get the idea that God's people care about this physical world and about bringing healing and justice far as the curse is found? It's worth pondering because the resurrection is not just tacked on after the main work, i.e. the cross, is done. It is this event connected inexorably with the cross. You can never separate. In the book of Acts, you'll see this over and over again. The death, resurrection, ascension, and pouring out of the Spirit is a fourfold event that always goes together. And there's huge implications for that because a lot of people want to sort of have a repeat of the pouring out of the Spirit when there's obviously going to be no repeat of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. In the book of Acts, in the preaching of the early church, that fourfold event always goes together because you don't understand what God's doing in the world unless you see him as the one who's come to die, to be resurrected to new life, to ascend, to stand before the throne, even now, interceding for us and for this world to be the place that he wants it to be, and then pouring out his spirit to equip his church to be his hands and feet in this world. You need all four of those things together to understand what the kingdom of God is about and what God is about. So, as you go home for Thanksgiving, and as you later go home for Christmas, I want you to remember Easter, and I want you to remember Pentecost, because you don't understand any of them in isolation. They all go together, because God's committed to bringing healing as far as the curse is found. And maybe that's something you really need to hear tonight. Because Jesus cares about your physical pain. He cares about your relational pain. He cares about the frustration of this world. He cares about whatever's going to happen when the verdict comes down in Ferguson. He cares about that stuff. And he weeps over it. And he's called his people to make a difference. Let's pray together.